I recently switched out my winter wardrobe with my summer clothes. Do you do this too? Each time I have the opportunity to take stock of what I have, what I use, what I need to donate, and what gaps I'd like to fill. One of the funnest ways I've loved to fill those gaps is through Armoire, a clothing rental membership that can help you build the perfect summer wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five minute style quiz and select items from your online closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. Then when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out for more new to you styles that help fill those wardrobe gaps without the major investment or commitment. For my first case from Armoire, I chose mostly summer dresses from Bowdoin, a brand I can't typically afford, and the chicest double-breasted black blazer from Paige that has honestly surprised me in its versatility. I have loved having more options in my summer wardrobe without the pressure of keeping them forever, and I've already been building out my online closet with Armoire, so I know what I want for my next case. For you expecting mamas, those working or style obsessed who want to switch out your wardrobe with quality pieces without the designer prices, check out this woman-owned company that has your style and your sustainability in mind. Right now, my listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash progress. That is armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash progress to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. Welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to improve themselves, overcome obstacles, and make something special of their lives, all while maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am so appreciative of you listeners who keep coming back every Wednesday for the latest episode who share this podcast with others, who subscribe and leave reviews on iTunes, and I love interacting with you more. You can always do so through Instagram and Facebook, and you'll find me at both of those at About Progress. Today, I have a special episode with Dr. Jennifer finlayson Fife. She's back. Jennifer is a psychotherapist who focuses on marriage, relationships, and sexuality. She is brilliant. If you didn't catch her interview with me back in February on perfectionism, that is a must listen. I hear from people all the time still about that particular interview and that many listen to it over and over still. Jennifer offers us so much wisdom and unveils what perfectionism is really about in that episode. And I've included a link to that in my show notes, which you can access on my website aboutprogress.com. Today, Jennifer talks about goodness, which is a term I have noticed comes up a lot in her teachings. We explore what true goodness actually is, how it is tied to our human capacity to develop and alter the world around us, and how it is also tied to our deepest desires. Jennifer guides us to figure out for ourselves what we can develop within ourselves more fully, how to do so based on real wisdom and how to tolerate both the internal and external discomfort and pushback that often arises as we try to better fulfill who we are truly 
meant to be, even when life faces us with choices we don't like. My strategy in interviewing Jennifer has always been to just let the woman talk because no one says it better than her. Let's give her the rest of the time and turn to our interview. All right. Hi, I'm here with Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Five. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Monica. Thank you again for being back on the show. Your last one was a huge hit. Today, we're going to be talking more about goodness, and we're going to get more into that. But I thought it'd be nice to have you tell people right off the bat where they can find you and what things you are offering in their near future that they can take part in. Sure. So, well, I um, probably, and if you link to this, people can come to my website, and I basically offer... um, therapy services. I do coaching online. uh, But probably the biggest thing I offer is lots of podcasts as well as online courses. And I specialize in working with the LDS um, or Mormon population. And so I have a lot of online courses for LDS couples around uh, improving their relationship and their sexual relationship, as well as a women's desire course that I teach online. And I'll also be doing a live workshop, a two-day workshop on desire and sexuality uh, at the end of August in Southern California, uh, which if people are interested can learn about on my website, on my events page, as well as I'll be doing one in Salt Lake. Probably at the end of September, I have a location uh, now secured. I'm just coming up with a date, but it'll probably be September 22nd and 23rd in Salt Lake. Okay. So I will be linking all that in the show notes for people. And I recently attended your one in Walnut Creek and it was phenomenal. Like I cannot recommend it enough to anyone who's considering it, even for people who don't think they need it. um, It's life changing. So there is something that comes up a lot in your courses and in what you talk about. Um, and in this workshop, I noticed this word that keeps coming up is goodness. And mm. I was telling you off the air that I find myself now saying it a lot. It's, it's, mm. it's become this part of um, how I'm trying to think about the world and changing my lens around it. Mm. So I want to unfold that a little more with you and see sure what you have to say on this topic, goodness, how it relates to our deepest desires and what we can do to better fulfill true goodness. So in your mind, what is goodness? Well, first, it's really interesting, you know, just when you suggested this as a topic and that, you know, I use this word a lot, it's, it sort of exposes me to myself as well because I mm-hmm. hadn't really maybe thought about it so much until you'd... Um, suggested this as a topic and so it's also gotten me thinking a little bit about what I'm saying and what I mean yeah but I do think you know I link goodness with love and and um I think of love not say here for a minute but really as an action love is love is action that accrues to the well-being or betterment of the beloved and I think of goodness in the same vein, which is goodness is anything that promotes the well-being and the development of those around us and within ourselves. So it's really about, you know, what are the things that sustain us and um, develop us? That's goodness, because I see human beings as being capable of development and capable of being creators of good 
goodness in the world, create, creating of realities, of art, of skill, of capacities that bless our own lives and bless the lives of others. And so, you know, in, in some of the theology that I talk about, I talk about us being co-creators with God, co-creators of goodness that we can impact the world favorably through what we develop in ourselves and what we offer to one another. And so it's always, though, what makes it goodness versus the appearance of goodness is whether or not it really facilitates our own spiritual and moral development and that uh, development of others as well. And I want to explore that, um, how someone can uh, discover what is goodness for them. But first, I want to talk about the flip side of that, that you mentioned, the appearance of goodness that I think people get trapped into pursuing. So what does it look like when someone is pursuing goodness, but with ulterior motives? I think that we all want to be approved of by our group. Mm -hmm. We want to know that we're considered valuable or sufficient. And so oftentimes we will, well, normally, what I think is actually pretty normal human behavior is that we are in pursuit of the approval of those around us. And so oftentimes we'll do what will get other people's approval and we'll do what others tell us is good in order to get approval, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily develop our own sense of what goodness is and what goodness is specific to ourselves. And so compliance often gets labeled as goodness. And we all like compliance. I know I certainly like my children's compliance. (laughs) It makes my life easier. But uh, that's not sufficient for developing able um, human beings, morally capable human beings, is not just to have compliant children. And so teaching them how to develop themselves and to develop their own moral reasoning and their own moral judgment and their own ability to discern and make choices that are good for them and for those around them is not always going to look like compliance to my desires or what I tell them to do. I see the difference there. So if someone is doing this based off of a compliance, it kind of goes in hand to what I hear about this should-based thinking, you know, living Mm -hmm. your life based off of shoulds instead of what we deeply want, desire, and believe is right to do. And Mm -hmm. where do you see that coming into play with this? Well, I would never say that there's anything wrong with doing what you believe you should do. Um, But I think what you're pointing at is we're pointing to is this idea that we do what others tell us we should do. Mm-hmm. So if you really believe you should, you know, be faithful to your husband, for example, or that yeah. you should, um, you know, obey the law or whatever, by all means, I think if you really believe that's right and that's living according to the way that you believe is right for your life, you should do it. Meaning, yeah. it's good for your mental health, your well-being and the well-being of others, for you to yield to your own moral dictates, right? Um, Because, you know, you believe they're right. 
But I think what you're pointing to is the idea that we often will borrow what other people have told us we ought to do and that will give their, that will um, secure their approval. Um, and so it's kind of a way of trying to get other people's validation and get other people to see us the way we want to be seen, but it's a way of not really taking responsibility for whether or not we believe it's the right thing to do or not. It may well be the right thing for us to do, but oftentimes we'll still put it at the feet of other people mm -hmm. what our moral choices are. And so it still has a different impact on us and on those around us because we aren't really taking responsibility for our choices. We're handing them to the people around us and looking for their approval. This is the way that all children start out. We all start out in this way. We're sort of borrowing uh, a paradigm of what is good. And we are borrowing a sense of self in many respects from the people around us when we're young. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's how we all start. But if we stay stuck in that framing, it limits our, our moral and relational development as people. So I'm trying to think of an example that helps show what you're trying to say here. You can, you can be doing mm -hmm. something because sure. of shoulds um, and that are right and that you own, but you mm -hmm. can be doing the same thing because of what your group is telling right. you is right. So, can so we talk for, about I can that? think of an example, maybe from my own life that yeah. I've brought up before. But, you know, when um, my oldest um, was two years old, he was diagnosed with um, autism or being on the autism spectrum. So that diagnosis came um, at about the time that I was offered a job at Boston University to be a half-time professor and half-time clinical position that I, in the Department of Psychology and Theology. Now, this isn't all necessarily that important, except that it was precisely the kind of job that I would want. Um, it was the department that I would be interested in. I was able to do clinical work and also teach. It was just seemed like the office was perfect. Like it was like mm. looked over Beacon Street. I mean, wow. it was ideal in so many respects, mm -hmm. except that I had a child who needed me to be home. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and so I could have framed it as um, I should stay home. Like I grew up learning that good women stay home with their children. And people would probably disapprove of me going to work, especially when I have a child with special needs, right? Yeah. Or they would disapprove just in general because from the you know, the cultural reference point that I had that would not get high validation in general. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but I didn't think about it that way. I thought about it around what do I really desire and what do I really want? Because I really do want this job, but I really don't want to turn the job of parenting over to anyone else. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband had at the same time just been offered a job that paid much better than what I would have been being paid. I didn't think that we could both uh, that be, I, I didn't think that I could be working, my husband be home, and that we would be making enough to, to sort of pay for the therapy and all the things that we would need for my son. 
And so I just made the decision that of all my options, none of which were really great, (laughs) that I wanted to be home. And I wanted to do that, which is not to say that it was easy or fun or sometimes not really overwhelming and sometimes really discouraging for me. Um, But because it was placed in a frame of what I wanted amidst all my less than optimal choices, I had the clarity that this was my desire. Mm -hmm. And that was very, very helpful for not getting depressed during that really, really challenging period. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, if I had said, well, I'm doing it because I should, as in other people expect me to be home, um, and I had taken on that kind of disownership of my choice and laid it at the feet of, you know, the other potential judges out there, I think the chances of me getting depressed and resentful would have been very, very high, even though the, the overt behavior was the same. I see. So the difference there seems to be, um, and and at least the outcome, is even if you are still trying to do what's good and right, but doing it based off of other people's shoulds on you, it breeds resentment and unhappiness, right? And and still doing the same thing, but for this real choice in your heart that that's what you want. Right. What does that lead to? And. Well, I think, you know, it's a little bit hard to explain because like life seldom gives you the choices that you want. I mean, I think that (laughs) often we're trying to discern and assert what we desire amidst really limited options and with limited control and with limited ability to actually secure or be certain that we're going to get the thing that we desire. And I think it's a really challenging thing about life. But what it gets you is it it does get you a stronger sense of, well, there's a lot of good things that came out of that, is I really lived up to my own expectations of who I was going to be as a parent. Mm -hmm. And that's very, very important for self-confidence and for a sense of self-respect. And that was more important than how good it would have looked to my professional colleagues, if I had taken that job, meaning a lot of people thought I was a little crazy to turn that job down. Mm -hmm. And I could have gone after that external validation, but I would have been, I think, betraying something more core to who I was around what I wanted to be able to offer to my son. Mm -hmm. And so living up to your own moral beliefs is really important for peace of mind and self-confidence. And I think it also accrued to my children not feeling resentment from me mm-hmm. around their challenges, their needs, their presence in my life, because I sometimes would have to walk myself through my choices and go through, it, kind of tell myself I could make different choices if I wanted, and, and I would keep coming back, at least for many years, I kept coming back to the same choice I had made. But that would keep it clear in my own mind that I did have choices and this is what I wanted, uh, as imperfect of a choice as it was. And so it accrued to also a sense of my own self, even in a very challenging situation, that I was doing what I wanted to be doing despite the difficulty of it. Mm -hmm. I like that you're really honest about how sometimes pursuing goodness doesn't feel good. 
Oh, definitely. You know, yeah. <laughs> often and, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah, maybe maybe most often. So mm-hmm. how how can someone trudge through that when they recognize? And what we're going to spend time on how someone can recognize what is going to lead to their better development. But mm-hmm. in that course, uh, what can someone do when it feels so uncomfortable? Or they're getting a lot of pushback, even mm-hmm. externally by people that they love or internally too. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot in that question. I think, I mean, I think what it really comes down to is taking yourself on around what your choices are and what it is that you desire to create. And if you can back up and stand by what it is that you want. And if you can't back up or stand by what it is that you want, why can't you? You know, is it that you're capitulating to other people's pressure, but it's going against something core to yourself? Or is it that you feel truly uncomfortable with what you're saying you want because you don't feel that it's right or good? Mm. Yeah. Right. So, you know, and I would often take my, my husband at first was traveling quite a bit because he'd taken a job in another city. And so... I was pretty overwhelmed, right? And so I would, Mm -hmm. you know, at times just be like, okay, this is super hard. And I was also kind of grieving what, you know, that my child had a diagnosis. I wasn't sure at all what it was going to mean for his future, for my future. So there was a lot that I was trying to kind of keep my head above water around and get clear about what I wanted. So certainly it was challenging at times and, and not being angry at life in a way for offering an imperfect reality mm-hmm. and it not being angry at life for how limited my control was. Like I could do my very, 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 very best as a parent and have it still be way, way, way too little for what he needed. Right. And that was just a reality that I had to confront. Yeah. Um, and to still try and not be resentful or hateful or, you know, and still just say, here it is. This is reality. What do I think is most right? What do I think I need to do in the face of this? Do I need to ask for more help? Do I need to, you know, rearrange the reality with my husband that, you know, you know, he travels less? What Do I need, you know, to live closer to my parents? And what is the thing that's going to help me be able to do this? Um, so I'm not sure if I'm answering the question entirely, but it was about really trying to not go into victimhood, not giving yes. my choices away, facing some pretty challenging realities, which many of us have to face, and still saying, who am I going to be in all of this? And I only have control over that. I don't have control over much else. Mm-hmm. And tolerating that, which is a really important part of living life well, but a hard part. Is, is tolerating... Is... What you don't have control over. I see. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's let's talk now about how someone can figure out what is real goodness for them, what's going to really, like you said, sustain and develop them in a way that um, is going to lead more love and happiness in their life, I guess, in, in terms mm-hmm. of owning our choices, maybe not the... Mm-hmm. Like those happy choices we probably don't get mm-hmm. faced with every day. But you, you, you said this quote in um, the workshop I attended from mm-hmm. the Gospel of Thomas, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, here, I'll just read this. I think this applies to what we were talking about and how someone can find their own goodness. So 
um, quote, if you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you, do you think that can relate to us figuring this out for ourselves? Yeah. Well, so I do think like human beings that we are, we have the capacity to develop right? and we have the capacity to develop skills and to, as I was saying earlier, to create a better reality, both within ourselves and within the world. And um, it's just sort of the amazing reality of what it is to be human. As you see, you know, you just see children, babies, even just looking at a pile of blocks, and they just are immediately creative, you know, they're trying to kind of create something, develop something Mm -hmm. right there, they don't need a manual on what you do with blocks, right. And this is just sort of part of who we are as human beings. And, um, and so I think, you know, another reference, you know, this is the gospel of Thomas was quoting Christ here, but also Christ in the new Testament talks about it in the parable of the talents. And I see talents as not these overt things that we call talents sometimes like being able to play the piano or something like that, Mm -hmm. but these proclivities or capacities that we have, and we all have capacity we all have capacity within us. And some, of course, have much more natural capacity than others do. But we all have proclivities or interests, things that we're drawn to, things that we can offer, things that we can create. And and so I think, you know, a really important part of, you know, I, I see kind of this issue of self-esteem is coming from sort of two sources. One is that on on some level, we must all accept that we all have value just because we are, right? That just, that just being human beings, we have an inherent value and we matter. And so that's a part of self-esteem. But what also is really fundamental to self-respect is the ability to develop ourselves, to develop capacity within ourselves, both through learning in the world, learning skills, but also through our own spiritual and moral development, you develop capacity within yourself. Capacity to love, capacity to be loved, capacity to tolerate disappointment, for example, capacity Mm -hmm. to receive, capacity to metabolize um, someone's cruelty even. Mm -hmm. And by metabolize, I mean to kind of tolerate the cruelty that's in the world without returning it in kind. I see. And so this capacity is really, um, many of us resist developing ourselves into our own unique expressions of godliness, of humanity, because we fear the exposure and the risk and the potential invalidation that comes through doing that. Mm -hmm. And many of us look more to what others want from us as a kind of safer route. And that has some value in it. I don't want to just say, you know, there's no value in ever complying to what other people want. It certainly does have value. But if that is the only paradigm that we operate in, we limit our ability to really develop into beings capable of offering um, goodness in the world, Mm -hmm. creating a better world through our own capacities. 
I'm thinking about some some people who might be listening to this who could probably qualify as control freaks, you know, mm-hmm. someone who might take this and just uh, run mm-hmm. with it and maybe an unhealthy direction, you know, moving towards the better part, like you say, like you've said, it can be mm-hmm. messy. So how mm-hmm. can someone who would identify themselves as like a control freak, how can they push themselves towards tolerating the messiness of this process? Well, I would be kind of interested in thinking about like, what is the person trying to control? Why, first of all, are they a control freak? And what are they trying to get control of? And I don't Mm -hmm. know if you have some thoughts about that, just to make it a little more concrete for me, Monica, like, what do you think? Somebody that's a control freak is trying to secure. Well, security, you know, in a a weird way or self-esteem almost based off of their uh, tangible achievements, I would say. I think control Mm. freaks are those people who like to have things in a certain order, certain timeline to have a a product that proves Mm -hmm. their worth to other people. Um, And and if they're removing that, those um, outside voices and and still trying to hearken to what's inside of them and move towards a different kind of goodness, I think there's going to be a lot of frustration and fear involved because the product might not be, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, presentable. Yeah, I think what you're, you know, I think you're right. I think what you're pointing to is is a lot of what came up in the perfectionism podcast, which yeah. is the people that are trying to kind of demand, I see kind of a couple things in it, but sort of demand that the face that gets put forward is acceptable or is superior, is seen as flawless or kind of in control. Mm-hmm. Um and or you know a desire to not have any exposure i think is what you're talking about yes. or or what they might experience as a kind of um vulnerability mm-hmm. uh in the world and so you're asking the question of like how do you help people that are doing that mm-hmm. see what i would one thing i would say is anybody that's trying so hard to present perfection to the world is participating in a kind of self-disrespect. They are basically buying into the idea that their inherently flawed nature, I don't know if flawed is the right word, but underdeveloped nature is somehow not acceptable or okay. Mm -hmm. And their humanness is not okay. Yeah, their humanness is not okay. And um, what really matters is other people's approval, not their own development. Mm-hmm. And so it's a way of basically saying, I have to look good at all times. And therefore, if that means compromising my own ability to develop a skill or develop a capacity or to expose my humanness to another person uh, or even be in a close relationship, an intimate relationship in which my humanness would clearly be exposed, I won't do it, or I'll keep a kind of formality or um, superficiality in a relationship. They're basically saying, I'm not, I'm not okay. Yeah. And so I think the way I push my clients often is around this issue of if they are really going to be in relationship to themselves in this way. 
I mean, often my clients have learned this from their families of origin. They've learned how to be in a kind of contemptuous relationship towards themselves and a demanding relationship to themselves. But they have a choice of whether or not they're going to keep fostering that and facilitating that kind of demandingness or if they're going to allow themselves to forge what is within them, Mm -hmm. to start developing the things that really matter to them and to have enough compassion towards themselves for the inherent exposure and inherent um, imperfection that is a part of that process. And, you know, on, you know, on a personal note, this is something I feel like you have really taught me that I didn't realize I was doing to myself or to my relationships. You know, we've talked about this with the lens of my own marriage, which is a, a pretty darn good marriage, but flawed mm-hmm. by how I was not allowing my humanness to show. And mm-hmm. I think another um, way to encourage someone to be real and show their humanness and their families and their relationships is to consider what is it really worth to them to hold on to this ideal? You know, is Mm -hmm. it really worth not having deeper real relationships and growth and development, or is it just worth upholding this ideal and losing that? Yes. And it's an ideal that not only works against the person herself, but it works against those she's in relationship to, you know, you deprive your children and your spouse from really being in, meaningful contact with you right or Mm -hmm. from ever being able to really permeate and know the person that is their mother or their spouse Mm -hmm. and you know it's a kind of um you know you you know you meet those people sometimes they're just they're very friendly often but very walled and you just never feel like you can that they'll receive you that that you can kind of know who they are Mm -hmm. and it feels like a rejection of sorts often yeah. Um, because you're sort of not willing to join the human race in a sense um, when you demand a kind of perfectionistic veneer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's easy for us to recognize that um, in someone else, but not yeah. so much in ourselves. It's Absolutely. kind of a startling reali- realization. Yes. But owning it, I mean, it leads to so much more growth. Truly, it does. Yes. And I, I also wanted to talk about another category of sure. people who are, they say, you know, I'm selfish. Like I, mm-hmm. that's just who, that's my makeup. I do think about myself. I do think about mm-hmm. what I want all the time. So mm-hmm. it would be dangerous for me to just do my deepest desires or pursue my deepest desires when I want them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So what do you say to someone who might worry about well, that? Sure. Well, first of all, if somebody's worrying about that, that's probably, that can be a good sign, but let me kind of think out loud about that a little bit. Um, First of all, I think that, you know, one of the ideas I learned from uh, Dr. David Schnarch is the idea that we, we all want two things in the world as human beings. We want to belong to ourselves and we, let me say it differently. We want to belong to others. We want to know that we matter, that we have a place in a family, in a relationship, in a community. So we want to know that we belong to others, but we also want to know that we belong to ourselves. And that Mm -hmm. is that we all want to be true to the, to our own nature. We want to develop our own capacities 
And these are two things that human beings really, really want. And when you're falling in love, part of the wonderful illusion of falling in love is you believe that in this relationship you get to have both things, Mm -hmm. that you're going to belong to this person who's going to back you up all the way and support all the things that matter to you and you will support everything that matters to them and this will just go along swimmingly. (laughs) And and when you have enough dopamine in your brain, that's easy to believe. But of course, the conflict of relationships is when you come into conflict around whose desires are going to prevail whose anxieties are going to dominate in this relationship, who's going to yield to whom. And that's inherent to all relationships. And part of development is making room for more than one person's desires. Okay. Uh, you know, many of us go into relationships and we have learned how, oftentimes females have learned how to instinctively yield. Now, maybe resentfully yield, uh-huh. but to kind of say this is going to be a one-person marriage, and I'll back, you know, I'll back down and I'll defer to what my partner wants, or vice versa, or it's going to be about me. Mm-hmm. And even if I'm doing it from a one-down position, like you owe me, husband, or you should be the knight in shining armor, that you know, I have many couples who come in where the woman's desires have dominated in the marriage and in the family. And I would say either one of these is immature and wrong Mm -hmm. because when you're creating goodness, you are in a two-person marriage. You are making room for two people and allowing that to stretch you in the ways that that's going to stretch you, to make room for the things that matter to your spouse and to also make room for the things that matter to you and that are part of your development and your well-being. And, um, and so that can, that doesn't, that's not always easy to discern what that looks like. You know, for example, in the example I gave earlier with my child, that meant a suppression for a period of time of what I, of my career development and, um, of aspects of myself that really did matter to me for the sake of the greater good. I felt that for the sake of my dependent children and specifically my oldest, I needed to put aside some of those desires, at least for a period and to focus on him while it was critical to his development. And so that was a decision that was in my desire without a kind of what I think is sometimes a reflexive or instinctive self abnegation that many of us do in the name of goodness. It's not like, okay, I'm discerning in the face of all these realities, this is the right thing to do, and it means letting go of this other thing that I desire. Many of us just say, well, if I do what I want, it's selfish and it's bad, therefore it must be put aside. And then others of us will bulldoze and say, well, I want it. And, you know, I went to a workshop and Jennifer said, if you want it, you should. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or whatever. And, uh, and, uh, and then they bulldoze and they do things that are not good for the people that they have a responsibility to. Um, meaning they're not looking out for the collective, which includes yourself. So that is to say it takes wisdom and it takes discernment and it takes Mm self-control to really decide what do I think is right in this situation. And it includes, and I'm saying this to women in particular because women, uh, at least in the cultural frame that I come out of, are often uh, imbibed the idea that it always means no for the woman if she's good. Mm -hmm. And I just think that's culturally, I think that's a 
that's wrong. I don't think that's a true idea and I don't think it's a healthy idea and it creates a lot of resentment and dependency mm-hmm. in the people who self-abnegate instinctively. Mm-hmm. So before um, I let you go, I want to leave our listeners with uh, some tangible ways to go about this. So maybe you can give us like a little homework, I guess, some mm-hmm. some questions our listeners can ask themselves to start to get this uh, process really going in their lives, to get this pursuit really going. Sure. Okay, this is off the cuffs, Monica. Mm-hmm. Sorry. <laughs> you kind of had uh, well, some in your workshop too that yeah, I thought were helpful. Speak. I know. Yeah, I know. One of the things that I pointed people to was a YouTube video that was how to find your life's purpose in five minutes or less. And so you could Google that. Um, okay. But his, one of his, I, some of the questions that he was asking was, what do you do? Like, if you think about what you do all day long, what do you, you know, what do you love to do? What do you see yourself doing a lot of? Excuse me. And then the question of why do you do it? And whom do you do it for? Mm-hmm. So it's basically, you know, getting it, sometimes this idea of what do we desire and what, who are we supposed to be? This is an idea that we often put out there that I think is the wrong way to think about it. This is, I'm not trying to help you figure out who you're supposed to be. It's not a predetermined idea. Mm-hmm. It's okay. instead like, what do I see as the things that are my proclivities, my tendencies, my interests, the things I do a lot of? And, and whom am I doing it for? And how does it bless them? Like, why are they coming to me to do it? What is it that it offers to the people around me? Those are questions that help you get it out of the lofty, I need to be a engineer frame, yeah. for example, uh-huh. and gets it more into the kind of real life, who am I and how do I impact those around me and what is it that I'm able to offer to those around me. And, um, and this starts to tell you something about who you are and what it is that you're drawn to doing. And, and then I would just ask myself the question of, Am I doing what I want to be doing on this front? And do I feel at the, this timing in my life that this is this is the right level at which to have this uh, have developed this part of myself, or do I want to develop aspects of myself more? Okay. Um, you know, for myself, there were many years in which I would sort of inventory my own choices, and I kept coming back to feeling like it was right to be home and it was right to be doing what I was doing with my children. And then at a certain point I started to be more uncomfortable and a little more unsettled. And this was as uh, my oldest was getting more settled into a um, school that was really well suited to him. And my other children were more established and I started feeling unsettled. And then, then the questions that I was asking myself started bringing different answers and I felt like I wanted to start to pursue my clinical career. And so then the answers became different at a different point. So that is to say, you know, um, if I'm feeling, okay, so that's one way to do it. Is there some part of myself that I want to develop? What is it that I would like to know 10 years from now that I had created Hmm. or achieved in my life? Another way I would talk to myself about this is I would say, what are the things that I resent? 
Wow, yeah. I'll be looking for the places that I feel resentment. And resentment is often a place where we make choices, but we give the responsibility to other people for the choices that we've made. And so I would ask myself, what am I not taking responsibility for in these choices? If I'm not comfortable with the choice I'm making or what the role that I'm playing or what I'm doing in this situation, why am I doing it? And if I were to not be resentful, what would I need to do differently? Not what, the, well, not what would the other person need to do differently, but mm-hmm. what would I need to do differently okay. to be more at peace with my own choices? All right. If, if all of us could think that well off the cuff, then we'd be in a lot <laughs> better place in the world. That was incredible. That, that gives us so much to do. That That's awesome, Jennifer. I couldn't have asked for you to do a better response if I had given you that question ahead of time. So thank you very much. And I just sure. want to give another plug. If people want to explore this even more, your course is available online and, and it's also available mm-hmm. through those live workshops. Again, mm-hmm. I really can't encourage people to do that enough. Um, so I, I thank you so much, Jennifer. It was just My wonderful pleasure. to pick your brain again. And I'm really grateful you take the time. Great. Thanks, Monica. My pleasure. Well, she did it again, folks. I again learned so much from Jennifer, and I hope you did too. I would love to hear what you liked about this episode. You can direct message me on social media at About Progress or email me at packerprogress at gmail.com. In the show notes, I've linked to Jennifer's website, courses, some of the resources she references, and I've also typed up those final questions that she so kindly gave us as homework at the end. You can find those show notes on my website, aboutprogress.com. Next Wednesday, I am airing my interview with Emily Nelson. You might be familiar with her as the co-founder of High Fitness. She is full of energy and honesty, too. I really enjoyed learning more about her, and I know you will, too. Tune in next Wednesday for that, and until then, take care of yourself. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.